I'm Joe. Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully we'll stay on track and follow this program, but you never know. You never know. You never know these events. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, we want to thank the worship team for being here. Let's thank them. We want to thank David and Heather Kesselring for their work, for Jake Olenichek, for Mike, Kumarel, Justice, Witty, and who else am I forgetting? Other people have helped set things up. And who am I forgetting? Laura Dean. How can I? Where, where is Laura Dean? Laura Dean. So a lot of people did a lot of work setting up and providing food and um, all of that. So we appreciate their their efforts. Um, are there any announcements regarding technical things like food and any of that? Everything's covered. Yes. Okay. Good. Um, well, we're going to have a great program this weekend. We have some awesome speakers. Um, we're going to hear from some of our own people. Uh, Dr. and Mrs. Bond will be sharing with us. David and Heather Kesselring. Give it up, give it up. We're going to hear from Diane Vaughn. Oh, yeah. Uh, we have some people uh, coming in from out of town. You know Rob Myers? He uh, will probably be arriving tomorrow morning, but he will be here speaking. He is with Open Door. Um, but tonight, we have a special treat. A good friend of mine, uh, Pastor Joe Braden, who I've known for how many years? 37. Many years. When I knew Joe, he didn't have gray hair. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Because yeah. I've, I've been saved 42 years, and I probably met Joe about five years, yeah, about five years after I got saved. Yeah. yeah. He was very fortunate to meet me back then. <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Um, I was very fortunate. Joe and I were both young in the Lord, and seeking the Lord, and he sent us both um, into the ministry. Yeah. You believe he would do that to us? Hmm. Um, but he's the senior pastor of the First Baptist Church of St. Peter's. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and if you've been to our foundation conference in the past, you, you've heard Joe because he's been a, a frequent guest speaker. So um, we want to give Joe a very warm welcome tonight from Liberty Church. Come on up, Joe. Warm welcome, warm welcome. Give it up, give it up. Thank you, brother. He brought his library with him tonight. Lauren, I want to point that he's carrying a library with him. So he can raid that when he's done. I probably got that from you. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. no, Pastor Dave and I, and, and even Diane as well, and my Diane, we go back uh, to 1980, we worked at a Christian bookstore together, Pastor Dave and I did, and um, did you see they, they went bankruptcy, they went, they, uh, we left and they went kaput, you know, um, but uh, I was just thinking, yeah, 37 years, so, um, I mean, other than, other than my mom and my wife Diane, I, I, no friend has ever stuck with me more than 37 years, <laughs> other than, <laughs> so. Yeah, so Dave and Diane are in that rarefied classification of, with mom and my wife and, and them. So it's good to be back at Liberty Christian Church. Been with you guys a couple of times and always enjoyed the hospitality. It's good to uh, see some of you guys again. It's good to get to meet some of you guys for the first time, perhaps. 
this evening. Well, I want to talk for a little bit out of um, Isaiah 52. If you would like to look at the passage, um, I really want to read verse 7 of Isaiah 52. And um, if you would, um, then let us marinate on that verse. Maybe a weird way of putting it. But Isaiah 52, verse 7. As we think about the theme of this conference, and that is how we are called by the Lord to uh, reach out to those who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to seek them out. I, I think there's some wonderful things that we can um, begin our time with this weekend by looking at Isaiah 52. Let me read verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Father, help us now for these few moments to think about what it looks like to be people of beautiful feet and to, and to be people who have <laughs> uh, good news of happiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There is um, some notes there in the back of your um, uh, your, your handbook, your manual, your notebook, and uh, if you would like to use those um, to follow along with us, um, I would point out when you get to page um, six, um, I don't know that you have page six, so, um, but that's okay, we can, we can improvise, I'll, I'll tell you what um, I would have jotted down on page six, and you can just put that on the back side of page, you got page six? Okay, all right, so we're good, we're good. Either, either way, I was so late in getting this to your pastor that any errors or mistakes are exclusively uh, mine and not anyone else's, so. But as we look at this passage, there's two broad things that I want to uh, point out, and I want to preface that under this overarching notion of beautiful feet are to be driven by happy hearts. Beautiful feet are to be driven by happy hearts. What propels beautiful feet but happy hearts? Now, so, and that really then two points I want to make. There's, there's um, several pages there. Some of that stuff we're not going to cover in our time together. I wanted to put some stuff in your manual, your packet, that you could um, maybe, um, when, you, when you get out of here, uh, go back over it and look closer at it. And so th that would be for future study, future reference. Um, but on that first page, I, I want us to first of all think about uh, the beautiful feet that move the gospel forward. The beautiful feet that move the gospel forward. Now, in the original context of Isaiah 52, um, Israel um, is um, in bondage. Um, and um, God is um, moving through the prophet Isaiah, 
um, telling the people of Israel that when they find themselves in bondage once again, there will be, if you will, a new exodus. Just, I mean, exodus is a big motif in Israel. Uh, they were aware of that, that when, the way they, when they were in Egyptian slavery, uh, God rescued them out of that bondage and delivered them. And, and the prophet Isaiah begins to paint this picture that there's going to be, if you would, a new exodus. And, in, in, in yet, and yet when he, when he, when he uh, spells out the details, it will not just be a deliverance from a, a physical power, but it will be a deliverance from the, from the inner bondage that they have in their own hearts due to sin. And it's in that context that, that Isaiah says, now sure, as sure as God's word is true, here's what's going to happen. One day a watchman is going to be looking out for a messenger, and a messenger is going to come. And the messenger is going to come with an announcement that, that God has once again delivered his people. And it's in that context that, that the imagery there of this watchman waiting for a messenger, and when he sees this guy coming, he's thinking, this guy has, this is a beautiful thing to see this messenger coming. Because this messenger, this beautiful thing, the, the, the person with these beautiful feet is, is, is beautiful because he is bringing this, this good news, this happy announcement of our deliverance. Now, the Apostle Paul takes that notion uh, in Romans chapter 8, and he weds it to really what is an essential component of our mission to the world. He says there in Romans chapter 8, well, how will people call upon the Lord unless they believe? And how will people believe unless they hear? And how will people hear unless someone proclaims to them and how will someone proclaim to them unless they're sent and then he says how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news so, so whether it's Isaiah 52 or whether it's Romans chapter 10 we are trafficking in this notion this imagery of of how it is that God's people are to be people who have beautiful feet that's moved by happy hearts. Beautiful feet moved by happy hearts. Now, let me explain a little bit about what I want us to think about under the notion of beautiful feet. So a rationale behind reflecting beauty in our witness to the gospel. Right. I guess the best way to start this is just to make a clear assertion. Christianity is true. We are not peddlers of false facts and fake news. Now, as such, since Christianity is true, we can put forth sound arguments to make our case for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only can we put forth sound arguments, but we can also be confident that we can answer all honest questions that skeptics might ask us. All of those are answerable. Why? Because Christianity is true. Why is Christianity true? Because Christ is real, and what he has done is real. It, is, it, it occurred in time and space and history. Christianity is true. But that's not what I'm here to talk about tonight. <laughs> Christianity is not only true, it is also beautiful. Beautiful. 
This was something that the, the, the late 20th century Christian apologist Francis Schaeffer tried to underscore to the church. He reminded us that Christianity is true. It's true truth, he said. But he also reminded us that it's not only true, it's beautiful. Christianity is to be beautiful because our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is beautiful. I mean, maybe you guys already know this. You just sang it. What a beautiful name it is. You see, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from the, the discussion on the truthfulness of Christ or the truthfulness of Christianity. In fact, I would encourage us, and in fact, I think some of the speakers tomorrow or in a, a, well, will, will actually encourage us to lean into the truth claims of Christianity and embrace wise, thoughtful tactics and strategies for putting forth the intellectual arguments for Christ. Go for it. Do that. Grab a hold of it. That's not my assignment tonight. I simply want to suggest that adding the category of beautiful to the matter of truth is, 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 the, is a fuller picture of how we are to think about the gospel and how we are to think about being messengers of the gospel. Truth and beauty in Christianity are to be two dear companions. We are to be the people of beautiful feet. And one of the reasons that it is important to add a discussion about the beauty of Christ alongside the discussion about the truthfulness of Christ is why? Because we, we want to be messengers who reach whole persons for Christ. Not just an aspect of our being or a person's being. I mean, we are thinking creatures. Well, sort of. <laughs> he said it, not me. Um, so, on the one hand, appealing to the mind is spot on. Making the intellectual case for Christ is so crucial to our work and to our task as faithful witnesses to the lost. But we are more than thinking creatures. We are made in the image of God. And, and so we are feeling creatures as well. In addition to making the intellectual case for Christ, we are to make the effectual case for Christ. In addition to making sure that, that we shore up the truth claims of Christianity, that in other words, that, that, that what we're saying about truth, about Christ, is in, is, is, is in conformity with fact and in conformity with reality. That's really what we talk about when we talk about truth. But, but, but if you would, to use a fancy word since I've been to college, this is more than a metaphysical conversation. This is a conversation of aesthetics. Beauty. Is, describes that quality that's present in a person or a thing that gives intense pleasure and deep satisfaction. Christ does more than, than provide information to, to fill our curious minds. Christ provides beauty to satisfy our empty hearts. In fact, 
I would suggest, unless you're from the planet Vulcan, that we are probably more driven by our affections than our intellect. We are probably driven more by our passions and our convictions and our desires and our loves and our emotions than we care to admit. admit. And I, I, at least, I mean, I, look, one of the downsides of going to college and seminary and graduate school and all of that is I know way more information than my heart seems to have the ability to catch up and conform itself to in terms of the operation of my will. So we have to put forth the fact that we are to be beautiful messengers, people of beautiful feet. Why? Because we are proclaiming a gospel of a beautiful Savior. The gospel is a beautiful thing. It's a true thing. It's a beautiful thing. And and we are to be messengers of truth and yet messengers of a beautiful Savior. Bearing witness of a beautiful gospel in a beautiful manner, displaying beautiful means. We are to hold out the beauty of the gospel. Now, in part, why? Because we are not only up against what is false in our culture. We are also up against what is ugly in our culture. And I don't say that to say, my, 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 look at how much superior we are apart from the grace of God that has rescued us, apart from the shed blood of Jesus, we would still be purveyors of falsehood and we would still be lovers of ugly. And so we are, we are in a battle against that which is false and we combat that with truth. And yet, and yet I'm saying we are also in a battle against that which is ugly. And we will battle that with beauty. We are to be built up. We are to be equipped. We are to be armed with the truth. And yet, we are to be satisfied. We are to be content. We are to be happy with the beauty. The gospel in all of its truthful beauty and the gospel in all of its beautiful truth. Now listen to how Paul frames this this notion of beauty in a passage like 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. He says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads, so we're talking about reaching out to lost people, if you would, who through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. We are the aroma of Christ, he says. Think of it, fragrance and aroma. We're talking aesthetics. Now, to mix our metaphors, um, we're to have beautiful feet, not stinky feet, in terms of how we... Our messengers of the of the of the gospel. We we are to we are to embody the truth in a way that gives off a pleasing scent. 
Or the way Paul would say it to his friend Titus in chapter 2, verse 10. He says, so that in everything you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Adorn. The notion there is that, is that you would make attractive the doctrine of God our Savior. I, I, he doesn't mean take something ugly and put some paint on it and make it look beautiful. He doesn't mean make it attractive because it's not otherwise attractive. But he's, what he's saying is that take that which truly is attractive and make sure that as a messenger of an attractive gospel, you are in harmony and synchronization with the content of that beauty. That you yourselves are in a beautiful manner, in a beautiful way, with beautiful means, that you are in harmony with and and congruent with the beauty of that message. Or listen to the way he frames it in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 to 26. He says there, For the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. Able to teach, so see, truth matters. Able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting opponents, so truth claims are there as well, correcting opponents with gentleness. See, we're to be able to teach and we're to correct. See, it's about truth. But then he says, no, it's, it's about not being quarrelsome. It's about being kind to everyone. It's about patiently enduring evil, and it's about correcting opponents with gentleness. There's a, there's a beauty to the conveyance of that truthfulness. We're to be beautiful messengers with beautiful feet. And it goes on to say that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured to do his will. See, the notion of there's a beauty to how we're to go about this. Armed with the truth, but displaying it in all of its beauty. Or here's another way to approach what I'm saying about how we are to be those who hold out the beauty of Christ and even reflect that beauty in our own selves and in our own lives. There was a 17th century Scottish philosopher by the name of Thomas Chalmers. And um, he, uh, he preached a sermon. Um, and of course, I'm just enamored by the title of the sermon. I, 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 just, I, I don't know if I've ever finished the sermon, but I just, I just read the title of it and go, oh, that is so good. But, um, but it, it's entitled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. The expulsive, isn't that, you, you, we don't talk like that, do we? So I just, I, that's why I just, it's like, I just feel good saying that. The expulsive power of a new affection. And here's how he, here's what he's getting at here. He says, there are two practical approaches to rid our hearts of improperly loving the world. First option is we can emphasize the vanity of the world so much that perhaps we would Uh, be persuaded to withdraw our love from the world. Or, second option, we can emphasize the beauty of the Lord so much that perhaps we would be persuaded to exchange our love for the world for a better object to love, God. (laughs) He goes on to write, the first option won't really work. 
And then he explains why. I mean, no, no. Okay, so, you know, say, say you're a parent with a teenager. Um, we're praying for you. Uh, and, you know, your teenager comes home and, 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 and they say, I'm in love. Yeah. Well, with who? And, and they tell you, and you're like, oh, my. And, and you, you say, uh, here's, here's my dissertation on the 50 reasons why. This, is, uh, this, this guy's a loser, you know. Um, well, uh, that's not going to work. The more you badmouth that guy, uh, it, it just, the, the, just the more hardened, the more convinced, the more justified they are in their own mind. Um, and so just simply by showing the, the vanity of the world, he writes, we, that will not propel us to withdraw our love for the world. No, but we can perhaps see the Lord work in our hearts to persuade us to exchange our love for the world because we've now seen a better love. Now, a, a, really, a really tragic example that, that paints this picture in my mind is as a pastor I've had those sad moments when someone would come to me and say I don't think I love my spouse no more and what I've learned over the years that nine times out of ten the best question to ask next is this so who are you loving now See, because they, they've swapped out loves. They think they got them a better love now. That's how the human heart... Chalmers goes on to say, only the introduction of an alternative object of love has the power to redirect the focus of desire and actual delight. There is little use simply trying to point out the inferiority of the object love, whether it is stressing the unloveliness of the object or its foolishness. Such attempts will never stop either the love of desire or delight. No amount of merely running down the object of someone's love will effectively work, he writes. He put that in big bold print. That's why I yelled at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yet he says, but when we see a better, more superior object of love, there is a strong power for the prospect of a shift in one's affections. As the lovely beauty and attractive wisdom of, of an alternative object is shown and seen, its alluring power weakens the desire and the delight to the former object. We have a beautiful Savior. And if there's anyone or anything in the universe that could break up our disordered loves and our um, disordered living. It is being able to see the beautiful Savior in all of his truthfulness. That would be the expulsive power of a new affection. Now, so here are in page, pages two, three, and four, just I, those are, those are take-home papers. Um, those are some practical suggestions as you think about getting out of, out of your um, 
cloistered monasteries and an attempt to like rub shoulders with people who do not know the Lord. I, I think here are some kind, beautiful, gentle ways um, that you can begin to engage lost people. Um, and so take those home and over the next few days or weeks, read them over prayerfully and say, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me about strategy of how to beautifully hold out a beautiful gospel to those who are around me. And yet what I would point out is on number four, on page four at the very bottom, the, the last few lines I want to point out because that's the segue to my next point. And I point it out because there's a spelling mistake there on that, but also because it's a beautiful segue. At the very bottom under the, no, under the bold print consider, um, the, the last three lines, it says, to the extent that we cherish the gospel... We will share it with others. And then he, and he uh, asks this question, what, is, what, uh, what if, what if, that should be if there, not is, what if our experience of Jesus gladdened our hearts more than anything in the world? What if our experience of Jesus gladdened our hearts more than anything in the world? Consider what Christ has done for us in his love toward us. In other words, here's my contention. The best way to begin to cultivate a life of beautiful feet is to begin to make sure that we are cultivating a happy heart in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so my second point is, that would have been on page five, whether you had that page or not, happy hearts are moved forward by the gospel. Happy hearts are moved forward by the gospel. And here's the thing I want to explore here. I just want to do this briefly. As we think about the message of the gospel that we are to proclaim to lost people, I want to suggest perhaps a weird-sounding notion to us. And that is, let's first make a consistent daily habitual practice of preaching the gospel to our own hearts. Now, a couple of things that I would point out um, to direct this in here is, and I, I saw this book on the book table back there that you guys have, but there's um, a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, and uh, he was a pastor in England in the 20th century, um, and that, that book is called Spiritual Depression or something like this, but, but, the, but toward the front of this book, here's what he says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression in a sense is this, that we allow our self-talk to us instead of talking to us. We, that we allow our self to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. He says, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself rather than talking to yourself? He says, those thoughts come to, to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you, and they bring back the problem of yesterday. 
Someone is talking, he says. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. And, and, and it really, he builds this out of, out of Psalm 42 and 43, where, you know, where he asks, why are you downcast, O my soul? He's been listening to himself, and he's worked himself into a depressed state with all of the cares and troubles and worries that he has. He says his soul has been repressing him and crushing him, so he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. Do you know what I mean? If you do not, but you will have little experience. He says the main art in the metal of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You must take yourself in hand and you must address yourself and you must preach to yourself and you must question yourself and you must say to your soul, why art thou cast down, O my soul? What business have you to be disquieted? He says you must turn on yourself and upbraid yourself and condemn yourself and exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God and who God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do for you. And having done that, end on the great note. Defy yourself and defy other people and defy the devil and defy the whole world and say, uh, yet, and yet I shall praise the Lord. Amen. Who are we listening to? Who are we listening to? Paul David Tripp has a wonderful devotional entitled New Morning Mercies. And on February the 4th, he, he writes this. He says, uh, I find myself saying this over and over again. And when I do, people laugh. But, but um, I'm really quite serious. And here's his statement. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And he says, so he says, today, when it feels as though no one understands, what gospel will you preach to you? As you face physical sickness, the loss of a job, or the disloyalty of a friend, what message will you bring to you? When you are tempted to give away to despondency or fear, what will you say to you? When life seems hard and unfair, what gospel will you preach to you? When your parenting or your marriage seems difficult and overwhelming, what will you share with you? When your dreams elude your grasp, what will you say to you? When you face a disease that you thought you would never face, what gospel will you preach to you? What are we preaching to ourselves. What gospel? What truth? Are we bringing to our own hearts, wow, we've been rescued by this thing that's called uh, good news of great happiness. And maybe the reason we love the Christmas story and the Christmas songs is because, remember, the angels broke forth and they say, we bring to you this day good news of great joy. You see, we, we are purveyors of a happy gospel. But how have we applied that happy gospel to our own hearts and to our own selves. What gospel are you 
preaching to yourself today? I, 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 don't, I don't mean, what are you doing to try to make yourself a Christian? I, I, I don't, well, if you're not a Christian, yeah, I would, that's what I mean. But, but, but if you are a Christian, that's not what I mean. But um, I, I don't mean um, talking to yourself as though you don't know anything already about Jesus. I mean, what are you doing on this day practically as a part of your life, as a part of your patterns and habits? What are you doing to focus upon the person and work of Christ by applying the truths of who He is and what He has done and what He has promised to do for you and in you? Really what I'm asking is, who are you? What is your identity? And what does the person and activity of Jesus have to do with who you are and how you see yourself. What I'm saying is that preaching the gospel is letting the truth of the gospel in all of its beauty help you. Help you so that the beauty and the power of Jesus soak into your failures and your victories, your fears and your angers, your, your peace and your sadness and your happiness and, and all of the normal activities in between. It is letting this wonderful, happy gospel message that was purchased in the, by the cross of Christ and vindicated by an empty grave be the final word on my past, on my present, and on my future. So that our hearts grow in happiness, and in growing in happiness, they grow in beauty. That requires then, as a part of the strategy on how we will reach out and seek out those who do not know Jesus, we will, we will first rehearse and recall and remember the gospel in our own heart and in our own mind. 17th century mathematician and philosopher Blaise Pascal said that most of man's miseries, unhappinesses, most of man's miseries stem from his inability to sit silently alone in a quiet room for one hour. Now I would add, I would I would, I'd put like Joe's little corollary to that. Most of our miseries stem from the inability to sit silently alone in a quiet room with the Word of God opened before our eyes for one hour. So that as we have the Word soaking in our hearts by the presence of the Spirit that our hearts begin to be morphed and changed and transformed. We, with all unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed by the glory of the Lord from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Spirit who is the Lord. And so we want to preach the gospel to ourselves. You know, and as a, as a strategy... As we preach the gospel to ourselves, we grow in a familiarity to the, of the gospel to the extent that we are more naturally able to talk to others about it. In other words, we, we develop what, what, what I would call a gospel fluency, the ability to actually use a language. I, I'm like, I've taken Spanish, I've taken French. I went to Senegal a couple of years ago. And I 
I didn't know how to say anything to anybody. Why? Because, oh, I, I, you know, I undo toi cot, sing, see, set. You know, I, I mean, I, I learned a couple of terms and words and numbers, but I'm not fluent in that language. And I fear that, that, that we have some level of awareness of the elements of the gospel, but are we fluent enough in the gospel in applying it to our own hearts so that we could naturally share that gospel with others so that it's not wooden, it's not just rote. When Diane and I honeymooned in 1981, um, uh, Mr. Big Spender went to Sportsman's Cove at Lake of the Ozarks. And, uh, and, and then um, on one of our activities, we went to Indian Burial Cave for a tour. I know how to woo the women, apparently, but uh, uh, we all have dual cards, don't we? Yeah. But we went on the tour, and the tour guide, you know, he just, he walked through here and kind of reciting all of the, you know, the rote memory components stalactites, stalagmite, you know. And we were, we were about 15 minutes into, the, into the, the tour that this little four or five-year-old boy goes, what's that? And threw the tour guide off. <laughs> that wasn't a part of his memorized routine. And you know what he had to do? He had to start the whole presentation over. He didn't know how to jump in midstream. See, he didn't really know this stuff, did he? He wasn't fluent in what he was even talking about. What does it look like for us to have a fluency with the gospel? Because, man, we're talking about it all the time. Because the first person we're talking about it to is our own heart. So that our own hearts grow in happiness. And so, I just, on page... On, on your, in your notes on page 6, page 7, page 8, page 9, I just I broke up the gospel in some components that maybe you could use to marinate in your own heart and time with, and some scripture passages there. In other words, um, you, you could do it under the rubric of remember the message of the gospel. Um, and um, I've even listed, so I have some other passages here like 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, Galatians 3, 14, 13 through 14, uh, Romans 3, 24 to 26, Hebrews 10, 14. That was just marinate. These are like amino acids of gospel. I mean, just, they're just chocked full of, uh, or good fats, or whatever, the proteins, or just whatever, whatever kind of, they're not high fructose corn syrups, all right? So, whatever. Uh, so, uh, not that I'm opposed to that thing, but... Uh, so remember the message of the gospel. On page 7, review the call to the gospel. Certainly that means how we are called to put faith and repentance in Christ. And, and yet also how the Spirit of God works to summons us so kindly and graciously to himself. And then on page 8, rehearse the blessings of the gospel. Rehearse the, the wonderful things that are now true for us because of what Christ has done on the cross. And then on page 9, recall the implications of the gospel, the, the way we are to now walk and live because of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we remember the implications, um, uh, as, we re as we remind ourselves of uh, remember the message of the gospel and review the 
call of the gospel and rehearse the blessings of the gospel and recall the implications of the gospel, then we are nurturing our own heart in the wonderful truths concerning the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to what end do we do that? So that our hearts are being haplified by this happy message. Spurgeon said, since I'm a Baptist, I've got to throw in like a Spurgeon quote with you guys tonight. I just wouldn't, I just wouldn't be faithful to my calling. So they would, they would pull back my Baptist ordination papers. So, um, but uh, a, a happy God is to be worshipped by a happy people. And then I would just add Joe's corollary. To, I always got a last word, don't I? Yeah. Um, why? Because we are the recipients of a happy gospel. And we are to be happy witnesses of this happy gospel. And as we are happy witnesses of this happy gospel, we show this thing to be a beautiful thing. Or... To put it in the words of Peter. Though you do not see him. You love him. And though you do not see him now. You believe in him. With a joy that is. Inexpressible. And filled with glory. We are obtaining. The outcome of our salvation. The redemption. Of our souls. Why? Because there is a happy gospel message. And we can be happy purveyors of that gospel and show its beauty in how it makes our hearts happy. So, Father, thank you for the joy of the gospel. We thank you, Father, that you moved upon the hearts, uh, heart of Isaac Watts so many years ago as he read over Psalm 98, Joy to the world, for the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart receive, make, make room for him. And so, Father, we pray that as you stir in our hearts and cause us to see more of the beauty of your gospel, that our hearts will be filled with joy and that we will be happy witnesses of a beautiful Savior. Help us to that end. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One thing I would just add is um, a couple of uh, resources that I have found in Ted Tripp's book, New Morning Mercies, um, but a couple of books that particularly I think are good at preaching the gospel to yourself. A book called Note to Self by Joe Thorne. A book called um, A Gospel Primer, or depends on what high school you came from, Primer. Um, a book by William Farley called Hidden in the Gospel. Jerry Bridges has written so much about this, but one book in particular is The, Disciplines of, the Discipline of Grace. And then um, Elise Fitzpatrick, one book in particular, but a lot of her stuff revolves around this theme. But Because He Loves Me, How Christ Transforms our daily life. These are just wonderful resources that I think all kind of spin around the theme of what it looks like to preach the gospel to ourselves. So let's be happy in Jesus and then let's convey to others what a beautiful Savior that we have. Thank you guys.
Amen. All God's people said? I think I'm going to have Joe come and preach that at church on Sunday. What do you think? Do we need to hear that again? Amen. He's a lot better than me anyway. We're going we're gonna to pray, and then we're going to have a, maybe a five-minute break. You can grab a snack, and we'll come back, and I'm going to share the word with you. By the way, one, one of the things you always hear about conferences, we get so much head knowledge. And as Joe said, you know, seminary, he got all this head knowledge, but the heart's got to catch up. Tomorrow, one of the things we're going to do is we're going to have a, some workshops where you can get together in small groups and talk about stuff, process stuff, pray together, and try to get it from the head to the heart. So I think it would be very helpful. So let's pray. Father, we thank you uh, uh, for Pastor Joe, for the word we hear, heard tonight. I pray, God, that um, we would hear uh, not just with our minds but with our hearts. Help us revel in the gospel. Help us, Lord, love you, uh, revel in you and our knowledge of you, the good news. And I pray that we would be sharing you and the gospel as an overflow of, of our hearts and our love for you. Uh, Lord, we pray you would uh, uh, bless us, food our bodies. We pray that you would uh, continue to bless the word tonight in your name. Amen. All right, take five minutes.